All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. We are going to be jumping really kind of just straight into it tonight because there's, there's an aspect of tonight's teaching that I want to get to. If you've had a chance to peruse your notes at all, you'll see they're a little more extensive. I've, I've kind of been hinting at this. We'll, we'll read the text here in just a minute and, and, and show this, but as, as we get to a passage that has been really influential on the issue of justice, uh, we're going to take an, an opportunity and maybe think a little more clearly, biblically, about what that means. So, so we're going to be kind of pushing toward uh, that, but that's going to come a, a little bit later. So we're just going to, we're going to read and then uh, j- jump into where we have been uh, in our study in Amos chapter 5. So we're going to pick up with verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikath, your king, and Chaun, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So last week we turned our attention to this section of Amos' third message. And you may recall kind of putting this all together, Amos chapter 5 began with a lament. Amos leads the people in a lament over something that has not yet happened. So we kind of unpack the significance of that, that they are being called on to go ahead and grieve and weep and wail. The events haven't transpired, but they're going to. And so it's it's called a prophetic lament. Go ahead and, and weep over what's going to be the judgment that will come upon you because of your sin. Well, he transitions out of a lament. He, he doesn't get any more cheerful, all right? So he goes from lament to woe, to a declaration of woe. And there are two main ones that are referenced, beginning here, going then through chapter 6 and verse 8, where, where this is just an, another way for the prophet, and of course, you know, we recognize it's God speaking through the prophet, for the prophet to, to really indicate the serious condition that Israel finds herself in. She is in a, a, a dangerous and deadly set of circumstances because of her sin. The declarations of woe are designed to not only emphasize impending judgment, but typically a woe is pronounced on people who are about to receive the heavy hand of God's judgment and seem absolutely oblivious to it. They think everything's fine. They they think all is well. And Israel for sure thought that. They're God's people, right? Surely God's judgment is reserved for all those nasty pagans out there. Not Israel. Not the chosen ones, right? Well, Amos's woes are designed to shake them out of, of what is this 
this, this obliviousness to the danger that is around them. And so Amos chapter 5, verses 18, verse 18 through chapter 6 and verse 8, the prophet pronounces woe on Israel because of her sin and her ignorance of the day of the Lord. She doesn't understand that this message of the day of the Lord, the coming judgment, is about her. It's, and yes, there are, there are, there's language about the day of the Lord that involves pagans, but that's not what Amos is really dealing with. He dealt some with it, but the primary focus is, here is on them. God's people should not take for granted God's favor upon them and assume they'll never face chastisement for their sin. And so Amos identifies two false views of the day of the Lord that kind of contribute to this. Number one, and this is where we were last week, and we're kind of breaking it down. They have a misunderstanding of the nature of the day of the Lord. There are two ways that they are misunderstanding this day. Number one, and again, this is what we did last week, letter A, if you're looking at your notes, that rather than being a day of victory, it's going to be a day of judgment. You know, so, so he opened up in, in verse 18, telling them, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. That, that they, were, they were really... They were, they were hoping for it. They were hoping for the day of the Lord because in their mind, the day of the Lord meant they, they would then be uh, uh, a victorious people and all of their enemies would then be destroyed. And Amos is, is giving them then the bad news. It's going to be darkness for you. It's not going to be a day of light for you. It's going to be a day of judgment. It's going to be a day of death. It's going to be a day where you will face the chastisement of God. So tonight, now we, we move on to number two. And if you want to fill in blanks, I think there'll be some blanks to fill in. The second way they misunderstand the nature of it, and this is kind of like the first one, but maybe pushing it a little bit more forward, rather than being rewarded as a faithful people, they will be judged as a rebellious people. See, there's something else going on in Israel. One of the reasons why I think the nation has gotten it into their heads that all is well, because they're still doing stuff in the law, out of the law. In other words, they're still doing some of the rituals. They're still doing the offerings. Now, we've talked about this in Amos before. They're not doing them right. They can't be doing them right, because this is the divided kingdom. They're not doing them in Jerusalem. So already, whatever they're offering to the Lord that should be done in the temple is being done wrong. And we, we've actually emphasized this before, and it's a really important principle. We do not get to decide what qualifies as acceptable worship before God. God does. And just offering Him what we think is okay and acceptable is not sufficient. We don't get to evaluate these things. Israel for sure thought, well, we can go on and offer these sacrifices. We'll build our own altars, and that's what they did. And so they, they go on and they continue in these acts of ritual worship. So, so go back to verse 21. We see that this, this, is, this is what's behind verses like 21, 22, and 23. They continue to engage in feast days, sacred assemblies, burnt offerings, grain offerings, fattened peace offerings. They're singing songs. But what does God think about it? I hate it. I hate, I despise, in case you didn't understand the word hate, all right, he adds another word, I hate, I despise your feast days. 
It's, it's not just that God is saying, you know, this isn't the right way to do it. I'd prefer you do it a different way. It's not even that God is neutral. It's not even that God is just a little bit concerned about this. The, the language of hate, as far as I can tell, about the only other time God says He hates something is in relation to sin itself. And so what's he saying? You, you, you go ahead, go ahead and do, do these offerings. I hate them. I despise them. I don't savor your sacred assemblies. The ways in which you are engaging in aspects of worship are despicable to me. Again, I, I've, I'm sure if we could have been there watching the reaction of the audience to whatever Amos was saying, this would have hit them like a ton of bricks. They didn't have categories for this being a problem. They would have just naturally assumed that going through the motions of ritual and religion was sufficient. It's not. It's what God is saying here in Amos. It's not. Of course, it's a good, it's a good thing that this doesn't happen today, right? That there aren't people out there who think just showing up on the premises somehow is a spiritual and sacred act. Or in fact, are God's people exactly the same? that they were 5,000 years ago? I mean, yes. Yes, people do this all the time, right? Just assuming that the effort of showing up on the grounds is, is, is somehow all they've got to do. If they could just be there and sit, and, and then that, that's sufficient. That is not what God is looking for. Instead, God obviously, and we've talked about this before, what God's looking for is genuine love, right? Love for Him, love for others, genuine devotion, you know, they're not willing to give it. They think going through these motions. And so he says, I, I, I don't recognize it. I hate it. I despise it. Verse 22, though you offer me burnt offerings, uh, offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I don't accept them. I'm not going to regard your fat and peace offerings. So now we're getting serious. It's not that it wasn't serious before, but now he's identifying offerings that are often made in relation to the sins of the people. So now God is saying, even those ritual elements that would address your sin problem, you're not doing it right. And so it doesn't count. I don't recognize it. Because you are living in ongoing rebellion and sin, I don't recognize these things. Oh yeah, and you're singing, verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. Again, this language is really strong, and I think what's going on here is God is making sure they understand that even though they are going through the motions of what would be perceived as faithfulness, they are not a faithful people. They're not an obedient people. Rather than being rewarded as a faithful people, they are going to be judged as a rebellious people. And the next verse identifies this. In fact, we can tell that a transition is coming because he uses the word but. So, so here, here's what he's indicating here. You're doing all of these other things. You're, you're doing sacred assemblies. You're, you're doing the offerings. You've got your feast days. You're singing your songs. But you don't have this. That's the implication. So verse 24 then says, But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, before we move much further in this, I, I do want to note that there is, there is one way this verse is taken, verse 24. Uh, 
It's not the way I'm going to take it, but it, but it is a, a viable interpretation, and that is that verse 24 is actually the statement of judgment. The word justice, the, you know, the, the Hebrew language here can have you know, variation in words, and given the nature of that language, as old as it was, kind of as, as, as image-driven as it was, uh, not quite as precise as Greek. So the word justice can also be translated as judgment, and some would contend that what he's saying uh, get, get, get your noise out of here. I, I hate and despise all of your festivals. Instead, judgment is going to rain down. That's what, it, that's what some would say. Now, now, there's a part of me that really likes that as an interpretation, all right? Uh, be, because it, it, it would make sense contextually that that's what he's saying and that, that righteousness like a mighty stream, except the, the specific way in which it's used in the rest of the book of Amos. This leads me to believe that really what he's saying, that rather than this being a warning to them, saying, all right, instead of this, here's what's about to happen. Judgment's about to rain down on you. Righteousness is about to flood your land, meaning my righteousness, God's righteousness. Instead, here's what I think this is saying. He's saying, the the reason why I hate and despise your festivals, your gatherings, your worship is because these things are not happening. You, you, you think going through the motions here is something that I accept? No, that's not what I'm looking for from you. Instead, what do I want to see? I want to see justice, and I want to see righteousness. And the language here is drawing on the image of, a, of you know, a, kind of an environment that was arid, right? Dry, except when rain came. So the rains would come, and when they came, whatever streams or beds would fill up quickly, they could often overflow and flood, but almost as soon as the rain was done, that water was gone. This image, though, what what God is saying through the prophet is what should be happening is there should be a continuous running and filling of justice and righteousness in the land. It, it It needs to run down like it's always the rainy season. Let it run down like water. Let righteousness be like a mighty stream. So God's taking them to task, and this is something we've already seen in Amos, taking them to the task for the fact that justice is something that they have perverted. And, and rather than, say, uh, being a place where, where the law of God is respected and utilized equally among all people, regardless of status, class, economics, those kind of things. Instead of that happening, those who have, right, the wealthiest and most powerful are targeting the most vulnerable in the community and using them to make more money, charging them unfair taxes, um, taking pledges from them and, 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 and engaging in actions toward them where they could not protect themselves because those in power were able to target them. This is what Amos is taking them to task for. There is no justice in the land. People are oppressed. You, and in fact, if you remember, we even saw how it's happening with men and women, right? Even the women were engaged in this kind of action. And so it seems to be pervasive across society where the law of God is not being rightly respected. And so that's why I think what verse 24 is getting at is that this is what God expects among His people. It should be a people of justice and righteousness. Now, here's what we're going to do. 
because I want to take a little excursion, all right? I mean, it connects to the text, it does, but I want to take an opportunity at this spot, though the, the concept will come up again about justice, because this verse, as I mentioned last week, what was a favorite of Martin Luther King, it shows up in the I Have a Dream speech. He quotes this verse, he quotes a couple others, but this is one. And, and in fact, somebody I, I had read indicated that this seems to be the verse he quotes as much as any in like impromptu speaking. Like when he would speak, when he would give speeches in whatever context, he, he might not quote, and as Amos 5.24 said, instead he was able to, to weave it kind of seamlessly in, into how he was speaking. And so very often in whatever speech it was, he would work in the phrase that we, we should want to see justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. So because of that, this verse has become really prominent in civil rights issues. And, and and the, the language of justice in the text has created no small amount of controversy, questions, and confusion. I'm assuming everybody in here is aware that the issue of justice is a big deal in our culture, right? Is anybody unaware of that? I mean, if you are, you can see me afterwards, okay? And we can talk about it, but you, you probably have heard some stuff about this on TV, right? That issues of justice are a big deal, and it's not just in our culture, it's in our churches. Uh, it's, it's a big deal in, in, say, Christian conversations as well, um, and, and has, has morphed into a discussion then of the responsibility of the church as it pertains to, and this is really the key word, key two words, as it pertains to social justice. And this, this verse is often used. In fact, I, I can tell you firsthand, Beck and I can tell you firsthand, along with Pastor John and Pastor Aaron, we were at a conference in 2018 where David Platt preached this verse and began his sermon by saying, I'm going to use this text in a way that this text is not originally designed to be used. That's what he said. So I was grateful that he admitted up front, and I wasn't going to have to fuss at him in my heart and mind that that's about what he was about to do. Like he told me up front, I'm, I'm about to abuse this text for the purpose of what I want to say. But that's what he did. He gave a little bit of background on verses 21, 22, and 23, and then launched into verse 24 and began to apply this verse to systemic racism, social inequity, these kind of buzzwords uh, that are now such a big part of the discussion going on. So the question that I thought might be helpful for us to answer, and if it bleeds over into next week, we can do that as well, what is justice? And really the question is, what is biblical justice? What does the Bible say about the topic? What does that have to do with social justice? And what, what should kind of be our posture toward these things? So here's what you have on your notes. You'll note you've got a lot more information than you normally have. Uh, and I've, I've given the guys upstairs uh, a lot of slides. It'll, it'll keep them from falling asleep in the heat up there. Uh, so, so that's helpful. So in light of this, I thought it would be helpful that we just speak to the issue and try and offer some clarification. So to begin, and you'll see it there on your notes, I'd like to offer some definitions. I mean, one good way to get to clarity is to offer definitions, and I also want to attribute um, 
information that doesn't belong to me, okay? So I'm not, I didn't come up with these definitions. You'll see in your notes, there's a book written by Scott David Allen, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. I would commend that book to you. Uh, and you know I don't say those words often, right? So I take that very seriously. I, I've already encouraged you to read Vody Bauckham's book, Fault Lines, uh, but Scott David Allen's book is another one that I would commend to you. Um, similar kind of, of language, but perhaps um, unpacking some of the issues uh, with um, maybe a little bit more detail. So he offers four definitions that we need to know. To, to get to the bottom of this issue, we, we need to have a handle on these terms. So the first one he gives is biblical justice. What is biblical justice? So like the language here in verse 24, let justice run down like water. Well, justice, it, it refers to conformity to God's moral standard as revealed in the Ten Commandments and the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you could even then sum that up even further. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then when we think about biblical justice, this is what we this is what is meant. Doing that which is just, right, good, that which would, you know, is contained then in God's moral law. As expressed, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, because the commands are, you know, in, in both places, that this kind of giving us a picture. Here's what he means, what, the, what God means when he talks about justice. In fact, there's another word that's in the text, and it is the word righteousness, right? So justice and righteousness, though they are two different Hebrew words, are often used synonymously and in a number of cases are used interchangeably in the Old Testament. And 524 is one of those examples. He's not giving us two different words. Justice and righteousness in this case are synonyms here. So that which is just is also that which is righteous. And to be righteous is just what it sounds like. It's, it's right before God. True, good, appropriate. That's the context in which we find this language being used in 524. So, that, so that's biblical justice. There's a second word, kind of justice. I guess that's the way to put it. Another kind of justice to consider, and that what is called communitive justice. I know that's a weird way to put it, but this is often what authors do to make their stuff distinct, all right? That just means justice that happens in the context of relationships with one another, justice in the context of community. So, communitive justice means living in right relationship with God and others, giving people their due as image bearers of God. Now, this is a really important distinction here. This means to practice biblical justice is to relate to one another as those who have been made in God's image and to do it consistent with God's moral law. Because God's moral law is universal and, and goes, crosses all cultures. It's, it's, it, it, it applies everywhere all the time. God's moral law is built into the fabric of how the world works. And so this is the expectation that God would have on anybody, His people or not, that they would then follow this kind of communitive justice. So, so here's why these words matter. It's because this helps us understand kind of how justice should be working in everyday life. Because this, this is part of what can be confusing to us. We hear people 
say things like, we need to be champions of justice. And, and, and some of that sounds really weird because we wonder, what does that really mean? I mean, does that mean I got to go march or protest things or what does that mean? So, the vast majority of the time justice shows up in the Bible, it's talking about what I would call everyday justice, meaning the ways in which we live our lives as moral people, as people relating to one another in light of the Ten Commandments and relating to God, as people who love Him and love others. This is living justly, righteously, and so I've, I've given you just a couple of verses to, to highlight this. I think those, these are in your notes, like Proverbs 8.20, I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice. He's not using justice there in the formal legal sense of the term. It's, it's, not, it's not like, you know, the, the Supreme Court justices, all right? That's not what he's talking about here. This language of justice is talking about doing that which is just and right. It is synonymous with the language of righteousness. Similarly, when Micah 6.8 says, do justly to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, to do justly is to do that which is just. In other words, to support biblical justice. So we should be doing this with one another, regardless of who they are. This is how we relate to people. I make no distinction on relating to somebody as an image bearer of God based on their race, based on their class, based on any other, you know, the economics, education, uh, any of these other categories, um, you know, UNC fan, Duke fan, all right, I'm not going to make any distinctions. Some of you people will, all right, but I'm not going to make any of those distinctions among you all. So, so justice means I'm going to relate to you as an image bearer, and I'm going to do that because I love God supremely. This is justice. This is biblical justice and righteousness. I know this may be hard because this really doesn't sound like what we're being told justice is all about. But in terms of biblical justice, this is what we're talking about. This is what Amos 5.24 is talking about. This is why I would contend both David Platt and Martin Luther King used it out of context. I'm not saying I would disagree with some of the ideas. I'm just saying that's not what this is talking about. So there's another kind of justice, and that is, and so letter C, and again, I don't, I don't think you have blanks. I think all this is already written down for you. <clears throat> Third kind of justice called distributive justice. This may be more what you have in mind when you think of justice issues. And distributive justice means impartially rendering judgment, righting wrongs, and metting out punishment for law-breaking, reserved for God and God-ordained authorities, including parents in the home, elders in the church, teachers in the school, and authorities in the state. Again, this is Scott David Allen. This is in the book, right? This is, this is a definition, but I think it's a good one. So here he identifies another level of justice, and that being justice that comes down from authorities entrusted by God with the authority to ensure that whoever is under them is adhering to the moral law. I would contend that's the purpose of government. I think that's what Romans would teach. They have authority then to, to in, deal with those who would not be rightly engaging uh, in what we would call justice, meaning they're not living rightly. They're engaged in criminal activity, and so they can met out appropriate punishment. Parents have this kind of authority. We encourage our children to live just, 
justly and righteously, and when they don't, we have authority from God then to say what, what it means to, uh, to live justly and to live rightly. So this is distributive justice. We, we should understand this is a responsibility given uh, to those in these kinds of positions. So this is when we get to justice that's more along the lines of the formal sense of, of, of what it means to render justice. Now, for this to be done well, there needs to be a commitment to being a just society. And I really appreciated the list here that, that Alan gives in his book. He gives the hallmarks of a just society. And we're not going to unpack all of this, and this is not new to him, by the way. There are a number of sources where you could find very similar kinds of lists. That a just society would have these as features, acknowledgement of a transcendent lawgiver, respect for the rule of law, human dignity and God-granted human rights, a check on corruption, establishing due process, and entrusting final judgment to God. I, I, I feel pretty confident no one's going to disagree with that in this room, right? This all sounds really good. Would anybody like to be a part of a society that does that? Sounds really good. I hope you do, because I'm pretty sure that's what our founding fathers were trying to do. I mean, some of that language sounds really familiar, right? And, and so, the, this, is, this is kind of like the standard. Again, this has been well acknowledged and understood. What does it look like to be a just society? How can we be sure that those with responsibility to distribute justice, deal with wrongdoers, are in a system where that will work well? Well, we need these elements of a just society. So, this then leads to number four. And this is where we get into a problem. And the fourth kind of justice is social justice. Here is, I think, I think this is a really good definition of social justice as it is being practiced. Deconstructing traditional systems and structures deemed to be oppressive and redistributing power and resources from oppressors to their victims in the pursuit of equality of outcome. That last phrase, by the way, is really important. The addition of that final prepositional phrase. Not to the pursuit of equality, but equality of outcome. So this, this is heart and soul to what is being promoted today. Now here's why I bring all these up. Because very often what's being read back into the text is not one, two, and three, but four. People are reading the text as if it is then saying, so we need to allow social justice to rain down, to, to run like water. And, and this is a particular worldview that is destructive and devastating to culture and to church, I would contend. It comes from a very destructive place. And we've talked about this already before. But I've given you just some kind of some of the bullet points here. Obsession with power, oppression, and victimization. You know, the big issue here with social justice is this idea that there are only two categories. There's the oppressed, and then there is the oppressor. Fixation on class, race, gender, um, sexual orientation. These are defining characteristics of identity. And then fixated on redistribution of wealth and power. 
Again, the social justice concept is all about uprooting the systems as they are now because the systems as they are now are put into place by oppressors. And the only way to change is for the oppressed to rise up and overthrow the oppressor in whatever form that looks. History has shown that can take violent forms. But sometimes it can take legal forms, right? To such a degree that a man can swim with women and compete at a collegiate level, right? To swim against women. So, so le- legally then we, we see this massive revolution where, where this becomes the thing that, that we have to champion. We have to champion this. And, and if anybody's not, then they're an oppressor. There's only two classes, oppressor and oppressed. And these are the classes. Now, we have had a real-life example of how this particular system has become a worldview that, that shapes what people think about circumstances. In, in, unless you just absolutely have not turned on a TV or computer at all, you are aware there was an incident at the Oscars, Right? You may not have known who Chris Rock was or Will Smith, but you, perhaps you've heard the names, all right? So just to, just to recap, all right, so Chris Rock at the Oscars makes a joke at a woman named, named Jada Pinkett Smith about her not having hair, and her husband, Will Smith, uh, though it is an open marriage, all right, her husband takes offense because his wife got offended, walks up, hits him, walks off the stage, and then kind of keeps cussing at him, all right? So that, 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 is, that is the only thing that people are talking about about the Oscars, um, which I can understand because none of the movies are worth watching. All right, so, so that's really, you know, it's the only exciting thing that's probably happened on the Oscars in years other than when they got it wrong however many years ago. Here's what's interesting, though, about this whole set of circumstances, all right? Here's how one person has responded to it. Her name is Lisa Sharon Harper. She is ordained and a pastor, though she doesn't pastor a church. She's an African-American woman. She trains clergy on how, how to be involved in social justice issues. On Twitter, Beth Moore, don't get distracted by this, but Beth Moore said this when she saw Will Smith slap Chris Rock, said this, that was scarier than a Southern Baptist convention. All right, that's what she said. Okay? So here's what Lisa Sharon Harper said in reply to that. It was scarier because it was an open display of the outcome of four centuries of violence by Southern Baptists on bodies, minds, and souls of African descent. Which is fascinating since we started in 1845. I mean, I know I went to Tennessee and I wasn't a math major. I don't think that's 400, I don't think that's 400 years. But she goes on. It was Chris Rock's bow to white patriarchy by undercutting a sharp black woman's hair and calling her less than a woman in front of billions of people. <laughs> like billions of people have ever watched the Oscars. All right. So, so Chris Rock made fun of Jada Pinkett Smith because of white patriarchy. 
All right? Now, this is the classic social justice dichotomy. There's oppressor and there's oppressed. These are the only two categories. And the oppressor in our system is always white patriarchy. So it goes on to say, then in the next one, it was Chris Rock's choice to belittle a human being with a disability. The roots of white supremacy do not consider the disabled human. Therefore, they are unprotected from humiliation. And then she goes on to say this. It was embedded in Will Smith's trauma-triggered response. Will was abused by his father. That abuse was likely generational, tracing back to the trauma of plantation beatings, whippings, family separation, Jim Crow terror, and grief. Now Smith holds that trauma in his own body. One more. And we all saw the outcome of body trauma, and it shook us because we were watching internalized violence spill out on an international stage, and no one knew what to do. So they did what we've done in this nation since 1619. Nothing. Now, see, here, here's, the, here's already the issue. I don't think anybody who would disagree with me is watching, all right? But if they were, if she were to hear what I have said, you know what she's going to say? She's going to say, oh, so you're in favor of plantation beatings and Jim Crow laws. See, this is how the system works. This is how social justice works. Obviously, that was wicked. All those things were wicked. Yes, slavery was a sin against human dignity and the image of God. Absolutely. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. It's very clear, yes, that's the case. But this system is set up to do just this oppressor and oppressed. You occupy one of those classes. And, and, and if you are oppressed, then you are in a position of privilege. You understand how the system works. If you are oppressor, you don't. So, so w- the reason I bring all this up, and I know I've gone a little bit long here tonight, but the reason I bring all of this up is in this context, I felt like we needed maybe a bit more of an explanation of how these things work or how these things don't work. It's because in the church, verses like this are being used to say we need to champion social justice. That is not what this passage means. Social justice is a religion unto itself. It has a worldview unto itself. Read Vody Bauckham's book or read this book and you'll find that out. It is a system unto itself, a religion. It has its own sacred documents and its own sacred religious leaders and figures. I mean, it, it has all of it. That, that indicates religion and a type of faith. Do you know what the irony is? Pursuing that social justice as a way to bring some kind of equity to the system, the, the irony is that will only destroy it. You know what will work? Amos 5.24. Do it like it says. Yes, let just, right, moral, good, holy living determine how you relate to God and one another. Let those be the people that are put in positions of power and authority who have God-given responsibility to exert justice, to distribute it across a culture, across whatever community or society they are in. The irony is is that very system will never create what they want, but the biblical one will. And this is why I think it's important that we make sure we understand what the Bible is saying when it talks about justice. Again, I do want to emphasize, 
any set of circumstances, any situation where somebody is targeted and oppressed and does not receive treatment as an image bearer of God because of their race, because of their class, because of their uh, education, because of any of these things, that absolutely is a violation of God's Word, and we should not stand for it. We should stand along with those who, if they have faced that, then yes, we are your champions and we come alongside you, and we would support then your right to be respected as an image bearer of God. But, but the person who's going to take every single thing that happens and somehow make it the fault of white Southern Baptists, all right? Well, we've done a lot of things that we're probably at fault for, but we weren't at fault for something that happened 400 years ago, okay? I can tell you that right now because we weren't around. Maybe other people were, but I can tell you what in Southern Baptists. So, so this, is, this is important that we understand. What does it mean then to follow out justice? All right, next week, we'll continue. I know I went long. Uh, we'll continue in this, finishing out then what he's talking about here as he deals with their misunderstanding of the day of the Lord and what should and shouldn't be a part of their society. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your people tonight. Privileged to be able to pray together, study your word, and, and we do want to be champions of justice, of righteousness, as your word says. And so, Father, make us faithful to this. May we be faithful to your word, to what you call us as your people to be, so that we can be used of you to do whatever you have for us to do, that you might be glorified by us. I thank you for these who've gathered tonight their willingness to be a part of this time of prayer, this time in your word. I pray, God, that they would know your hand upon them, leading them, granting them wisdom for the days to come, that they might live faithfully before you and all for your glory. Gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.